Being a mom is the toughest job there is, and it doesn't come with instructions. So it's okay if you don't have all the answers. We'll figure it out together. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Hey guys, welcome back to Mom Brain. I'm Daphne. And I'm Ilaria. So today we're going to talk with Julie Fast, who is a really exceptional woman, um, full of tons of information. She is an advocate for mental health. Um, she herself, as she, as you will see, she's very, very open about her own story, was um, diagnosed with bipolar at age 31. She had her first episode at age 16. What I really love about her approach is, A, it comes from personal experience. So she speaks so candidly about um, what it's like to, to struggle with and and be present in this disease. And, and most critically, this incredible pl- program that she's developed through this personal experience and through years and years and years of research around the topic Um of coping mechanisms and ways supportive individuals can can identify and try to be um, an advocate and a friend to the community. So I, I also think, you know, whether or not you think you're struggling or someone you love is struggling with a disorder like bipolar, um, there's also a lot in this conversation for just depression and mental health in general. Anyway, have a listen to Julie Fast. This is a Hello, my name is Julie A. Fast, and I'm the author of Loving Someone with Bipolar Disorder, Take Charge of Bipolar Disorder, Get It Done When You're Depressed, and the Health Cards Treatment System for Bipolar Disorder. I was diagnosed with bipolar at age 31, but my symptoms started at 16. I eventually found out that I also have a psychotic disorder. And in 2012, I had a bike accident and got a brain injury. So my whole life is about the brain. You can find out more about my work at juliefast.com. You can visit me on Facebook at Julie A. Fast. If you're a parent, visit me on the stable table. If you're a partner, visit me on the stable bed. And I hope one day to have my book, Hortensia and the Magical Brain, Therapeutic Poems for Kids with Anxiety, Depression, Psychosis, and Mania, to be on the market soon. Would you do us a favor and will you um, articulate to us, will you define to us what is bipolar disorder? So bipolar disorder is a genetic mood disorder that affects a person's ability to self-regulate the mood. So all of us get moody. So let's say, for example, you have a situation where someone breaks up with you. You're going to have a response to that within a certain realm, society-based, of how it's going to be. If you have bipolar disorder and someone breaks up with you, you have that response, but you also have this chemical response created by bipolar that has nothing to do with you that you also have to deal with. Mm. So you might go into a super deep psychotic depression if someone breaks up with you, completely separate from how you even really feel about the situation. So you spend a lot of time figuring out what's a real reaction or response to what's happening and what's my bipolar brain. It's very tiring. And so we have to learn what moods are manufactured by bipolar and what moods are our own. And that's the path to stability. Super hard for kids, of course. Even with adults, it's hard. But like a trip for me to come from Portland, Oregon to here, I was sick for the entire week waiting to come here. So half of my time was bipolar travel management. Mm -hmm. So you don't get to have a lot of fun with things like other people do. Like I can't come to New York and party. I know I would be sick to sit on the show. So I modify my life so that I can work. I have a great life, really great life. But I have to take bipolar in account because it chooses moods for me that are not necessarily my own. What about the traveling to, is it New York specifically? Is it just travel in general? Just travel. So bipolar disorder is affected by triggers 
and people don't understand that trigger simply means change. So it can be great. A wedding can trigger a bipolar episode. Mm. A death. Travel is hard for a couple of reasons. Time changes, being around a lot of people, expectations. Often you're going to see family or you're going to do an event. And bipolar does not like change. So the least change you have, usually the better your bipolar is. But we are restless creatures, those of us with bipolar. So we crave change. So sometimes it's this sort of self-perpetuating illness machine because we want to get out and see the world. Then we get sick. Then we have to step back. Then we come back. It's a lot of work. How do you start to parse through? I mean, what does that even feel like to feel like you have emotions inside that are manufactured versus real? It took a lot of time. So I remember I used to live in Japan for four years, and I used to travel all the time. I'd go to Thailand or Hong Kong, and I'd be all excited. This is before I knew I had bipolar. I'd get on the plane, and then I'd get there, and I would walk the streets crying. And I'd go, what's – I was so excited. I'm meeting friends here. What's wrong? I can't – I don't know what's going on. And so bipolar creates this world where every time I go somewhere, now that I know I have it, I sit down and I go – who are you? Who do you want to be? What do you need while you're here? And then write down, I'm a big lister, all the paranoid thoughts. Nobody's going to like me. I'm too overweight. It's not going to happen. What if I get mugged? What if something happens? What if there's a big so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so? And And it sounds like anxiety to a certain extent, but mine goes to the next level. I'm going to jump in front of a bus. I don't really care if I live. And I'm like, all of that for a podcast? So you're like, come on. But if you're not taught how to differentiate between bipolar episodes and the real you, you will live in your bipolar episodes because they feel so real. And that's why therapy does not work very well for bipolar. Because if you talk to someone in an episode about how they feel, oh, I feel great. I'm wonderful. You'll think, oh, they're fine. Or I have no friends. No one loves me. Oh, they're sick. No, both are sick. And so you have to teach yourself how to do it. So the answer is it's not innate. You have to have a plan to separate the self from the bipolar in order to get better. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It sounds like a lot Mm -hmm. of work. So if therapy doesn't work, what does work? So it's not so much that therapy doesn't work. work. It's difficult. Therapy works within the bipolar world. So if you have a therapist who understands, oh, Julie's manic today. That's why she's so happy. Really, things have not turned around in two weeks so that everything's perfect. Then therapy works really well. But Mm -hmm. traditional cognitive behavioral therapy is not great for bipolar until the person with bipolar has insight and comes in and says, I'm depressed. What do I do? I'm manic. What do I do? I have found that what works, and this is what I eventually put in all my books because it wasn't out there. You have to learn what you think, say, and do when you're in an episode. Write it down. Show it to everybody. And avoid having conversations that are based in a mood swing. So if I come up to you and I go, you know, nobody really likes me and I don't really have any friends and I'm really worried, you might say to me, Ilaria, you might say, oh, Julie, I bet you have lots of friends. You're probably fine. You seem very outgoing. What are you talking about? I'll go, oh, no. Whereas in my system, people who know me will go, sounds like the depression's there. That's what you always say. It's on your list. How are your meds? What's happening? Did you get triggered? Let's talk about depression. And it pops you Mm. right out of what I call the bipolar conversation. You can call it the depression conversation, the psychosis conversation. And the people around you go, oh, not getting caught in that again. Right. Not getting caught. Right. So it's a system you have to learn. How do you get out of that place and want to get into a path of healing if you're thinking, well, it must be the the whole world is wrong. I'm right. It's almost impossible to do it by yourself. 
And that's why I think so many people with bipolar and the sister diagnosis of what we call schizoaffective, which is bipolar with psychosis, mm. which is very common for us. We tend to have a lot of psychosis. Unless we have people around us going, you know, that's a, I've seen that happen five times now. You've been in your room five times. You're playing video games 18 hours a day. Normally you're not like this. I think something's going on. Let's go discuss it with somebody. We will live in it. So I think that's the reason that I spend so much time talking to partners, family members, trained healthcare professionals, because asking us, those of us with the illness, to do it on our own is really hard. Like let's say, for example, there's a party going on around you, but you're lying there because you're sick and you cannot get out of it. So you've got to be able, number one, to go, ah, I've heard that thought before. Wait a minute. I'm stimulated by the party. I'm not really upset. I need to step outside for a minute and do something for myself. Or a friend comes in and goes, you're isolating again. What are you doing? So it's a group effort. But lack of insight is a really big problem in bipolar. What about denial? Did you have any denial when you were diagnosed? I think there's three things. So lack of insight is a term that means the brain won't let you see you're sick. That's more common with schizophrenia. And Bipolar disorder episodically, because it's an episodic illness, whether we're depressed or manic, sometimes we'll have psychosis with that. We will have moments where we really aren't sure what's going on, but then we'll have clarity. Denial is, I know what's happening, and I'm darn well not going to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And that's where you come up with, like, with eating and with substance abuse. There's a lot more denial in that than you have in the big SMI illnesses Mm -hmm. like bipolar and schizophrenia, what we have is disbelief. I can't possibly have a, what? I have bipolar? I have a college degree. Mm -hmm. I'm from a good family. How could I have bipolar? So we sort of go in between lack of insight when we're manic, for example, and psychotic. Then we have some denial. Oh, it'll be okay if I stay up till two o'clock just this time. I won't get manic. But mostly it's, are you kidding me? I have a genetic mental illness. So you are in between all of this. You've got to find a calm place that you say, who am I? How do I manage this? How do I ask for help? Sometimes it's a 20-year process. Who helped you identify that this was something you were struggling with? And, and how did they help you sort of create the path that you have now, create the, the, the tools that you now use? I'm going to have a surprising answer. In 1994, my then partner, Ivan, whom I we were together, had been together a year and a half, went into a massive manic psychotic episode and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. We knew nothing about it. And I later wrote a book about him called Loving Someone with Bipolar Disorder. Watching him go through that whole process, knowing nothing, watching how the doctors never talked to me, only the nurses did. There were no books on the market in 1994 for managing bipolar. There were books on what it was and what drugs to take. And drugs don't work for all of us. I'm not anti-drugs, but it's they're difficult. So I watched that, then saw my own symptoms come up. So I thought, oh, I must just have depression with OCD. I didn't know what mania was. I didn't know what a psychosis was, et cetera. So when both of us had it, I said, there has to be something better. And I was already a systems kind of person. I usually wrote a lot of systems. So I sat down and wrote it. So nobody helped me. There was not any help. There just weren't any books. You just had the drive. I just had the drive. I think it's a combination of 10 years with someone who has bipolar one, having it since I was 16 and already being a writer systems person. So I just made a system. So you say 16 was when you first had your- My first psychotic symptoms at 16. Oh, was that dramatic? You like- It wasn't dramatic. I was sitting in a bookstore and I'd hear a voice that go, Julie, you have to leave. And I would look around and I'd go, 
who's talking to me? And I'd get up and walk out. And this went on for a couple of years. So my first mental health symptoms were command voices. That's a hallucination. That at 17, I had a hypomanic episode in Europe. So nobody saw it. At 18, another hypomanic. What's hypomanic? Hypomanic is the, so there's, let me step back a bit because it's such a fascinating illness. So bipolar disorder is ancient, number one. Hippocrates wrote about it. It is not new. It is genetic. It runs in families. And with the genealogy stuff we have now, people are finding relatives, you know, they knew they didn't have. And to see how the bipolar is in the families is unbelievable. It's so genetic. It's not trauma. It's not personal. And there are two main forms of bipolar, bipolar one and bipolar two. Though Dr. Jim Phelps, just a a friend of mine and a pioneer in bipolar, calls it the bipolar spectrum, you either have bipolar one or bipolar two with the main diagnoses. Bipolar two means you have all the depression that comes with bipolar. You have anxiety. You can be psychotic when you're depressed. And you have an up mood swing called hypomania, which sort of means mid-mania. It still can be quite destructive. Bipolar one is all of that with the next level of mania. So bipolar two, Mm. depression, hypomania. Bipolar one, depression, hypomania, full-blown mania. That's who goes to the hospital. So if you have a friend or a loved one who's gone to the hospital in a manic episode, that's bipolar one. And so hypomania, you sort of rev in that up energy. Mm -hmm. And the energy can be exciting, euphoric mania, or (laughs) road rage, irritated, pissed off, cussing, dysphoric mania. And most of the people in jail because of bipolar are there because of dysphoric mania. So it's a complicated illness. Mm -hmm. So my hypomania, the milder kind, started when I was 18. Suicidal depression at 19. And then just kept going and going and going. I've gotten married twice after knowing the person very quickly. So a lot of people who are in hypomanic episodes or manic are very hypersexual. You'll get with somebody and you're married just or you go live with them after a week, Mm -hmm. which I've done also. Mm -hmm. It just takes away your ability to think, but you're really high with energy. So you're moving all over the place. Interesting. What's the difference between bipolar and OCD? Bipolar, I call it the garbage pail illness. Bipolar disorder has all of the symptoms you will ever read about, including we look like we have borderline sometimes. We can be narcissistic. We're anxious. We have OCD. But in bipolar disorder, those symptoms are always encased in either a depression episode or a manic episode. So bipolar is an episodic mood disorder that means when you're depressed, you're sick. When you're manic, you're sick. But if you're not depressed or manic, you don't have any symptoms. Mm. OCD formerly thought of as a, as a psych, excuse me, an anxiety disorder. Now they're giving its own kind of case, like they're doing with PTSD. That is a form of anxiety that it's about repetitive you know, it's movement. Constant. It's and constant. That's something that's more developed. It is consistent over time. So if you have OCD with your bipolar, which is really common, let's say I'm manic, dysphoric manic, like I'm angry, I'm mean, I'm upset, I'm depressed, and I can't stop checking my phone. And I can't, I can't, or I'll pick, 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 pick. And it's awful. It's almost like Tourette's, to be honest. So the only way you can have bipolar is if you have mania. So if someone says they have OCD, they sure might. They might even have OCD and depression and anxiety. Without mania, you can't have bipolar. Hmm. So bipolar truly is a mania illness. Sorry, mania just means you are not in control? Mania is only about energy. So the main sign of mania, if someone has it, they'll look like this. 
So you you're got this energy running through you is you're not tired if you don't sleep. That's the main sign of mania. Okay. We also talk really fast and we'll be really excited and we'll go, oh my God, Daphne, I just love what you're wearing. And oh my goodness, look at that pillow and look how you look. And oh, look at your rings. Oh, oh. And we won't be able to control how we talk. I call it machine gun mouth. We also are extremely goal-driven, activity-driven, even at the expense of our family. So for example, let's say you don't have a lot of money and your child needs new shoes. If you're manic, you'll go gamble that money. Because mania turns off the frontal lobes Mm -hmm. and the way you think. So it's not that you're only out of control. It's that you're not thinking clearly and you're filled with energy. And nothing feels as good as euphoric mania. And we all want to live in it. But you really can't. It's like being on cocaine. You can't live in euphoric mania because you'll burn through all your friends. You'll sleep around. You'll get in trouble. You get STDs. You have lots of problems. So the secret is managing mania and depression. It's hard. Bringing this into the realm of children, um, I mean, some of these behaviors, I feel like, are really common to all children mm-hmm. in terms of getting really excited and getting not really angry down, and getting, not being exactly yeah. the rage, all of this kind of thing. What um what can we look for in our in our own children to be able to um, distinguish mm-hmm. and then therefore see, then seek help? First of all, the innate ability that moms and dads have to know that something is wrong. I say, look at that. If you're like, you know, something's a little off here, start writing it down. Dates and times, what the child thinks, says, and does. Just start making a list. Like this is a little bit too much. So start charting. Okay, number one. Number two, look inside for your own levels of anxiety or depression. We will project a lot of stuff on our kids if we actually have bipolar, for example, or really high anxiety mm-hmm. or OCD. Oh, my God, is he checking? Is he checking? And you're putting that on there. So take care of yourself. But the main thing I teach, little children who get all excited and run around and do all kind of stuff, they will eventually sleep. They will sleep. It might be hard. They might want to read 50 books. But they are not staying up all night. Childhood bipolar, which is different from adult onset bipolar, it's quite different. That child not only does all the things you're describing, maybe crying for too long, too excited, throwing toys, but they can't stop it. So it will keep going till 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and you're like, he's got to go to school in the morning. Mommy, mommy, mommy. And he's still running around, still saying he's seeing things. Or a little girl is still trying to decorate her room or play with something or, you know, do something with a car or whatever. So it's about intensity and duration. Mm -hmm. Your kids, unless they have some kind of diagnosis, will eventually just be so tired. They will take a nap. They will go to bed. They will eat their beans. Kids with bipolar can't. Kids with bipolar can be psychotic, they can be manic, and they can be depressed because they have a brain like any, just, you know, all brains can have the same illness. So if your child, here's a good example. You've got a 13-year-old. I hate you, mom. I hate you. And she runs upstairs and she slams the door and she's like, I'm never coming down. I hate you. I hate you. That's normal. The child eventually comes down. That's just how it is, you know, and then everybody's fine. If the child is ill, the child doesn't come out of the room. The child locks the door. You hear the child sobbing. They might, I was in a situation where the child covered all of their um, windows with black garbage bags. You will know that line that yeah. switches between exuberant child and manic child. 
learning burgeoning sexuality versus hypersexuality, wanting freedom versus sneaking out of the house through the basement and going to a park and smoking whatever with kids too old. You'll know that line. Yeah. You'll know it. So if we do see these these signs, what do we do? We obviously go to the pediatri- our pediatrician, but are there it seems like there's a lot of disagreements about how these different whether it's OCD, bipolar, depression, how they should be treated. There's the people who just want to throw medication at it. There's the people who are very anti-medication. There's the people who want to go somewhere in in the middle. Um, I mean, and I think one of the hardest things with any of these kinds of therapies that we've that we've talked about on the podcast is that it depends on where you live. Depends totally, and it depends on what Completely. resources are there. So, mm-hmm. say you know, there's somebody who who is looking at their children, their child, or themselves, and saying, "I think I have that," or "I think my child has that." What's the next step? So, the first thing is reporting symptoms. I can't begin to say how important that is. Reporting symptoms is not telling a story. So often when we go to healthcare professional, we'll be like, "My son did this, and then she did this, and he did that, and she did this, and all this big story." I'm like, forget it. Give me a date, a situation, and then tell me what the child's thinking because the child will tell you, Mm -hmm. Mommy, I'm hearing this, 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 or Mom, I heard this. Tell me what the child does. He took his school books and threw them in the bathtub and put water on them. Tell me what the child says. Mom, I can't go back to school. There's somebody in the closet waiting for me, and I think they have a gun. So, and by the way, all real. See, that's not a regular kind of discussion. If you've got a child who is showing signs of deviating from the norm in a way that it's disrupting the home, disrupting the school, and worrying you, why not go talk to somebody about it? We don't have to put a label on it. You don't have to put meds on at the beginning, but we need to talk, and that must start with charting. Any good healthcare professional will look at your chart. So you've got the date of thinks, says, and does. If you start seeing patterns, then you'll go, here's what she does when she's depressed. Here's what she says. Mommy, I can't go to that party. Nobody likes me. If she has psychosis, I think the dad was in the other room, and I think the mom had a camera. And you're like, wait a minute. Is this a, is this a weird family, but, or is it just the kid? So you write this down. Anxiety, that's the physical signs. And you'll have this fabulous chart. Yes, you start with a pediatrician, but pediatricians are by no means trained, nor are GPs to help with mental health disorders. But starting there is the first step. Then, of course, you get online and you go and look what natural things can we do. My view on medications is very clear. We treat what we can naturally through lifestyle management, therapy if appropriate, sleep modification, the biggest thing. Food, unfortunately, doesn't help as much with the big-time mental illnesses as you would like it would, hope it would, but removing certain things can help, like too much caffeine or something, or high sugar can exacerbate problems, though it doesn't tend to create those things. And once you've reported them and you have an idea, let's say, what goes next? You then look at family history. Do you have genetic bipolar in your family and your three-year-old literally is running around and can't stop? Then you just start watching. You're not putting medications in the child. You're not doing that. You just keep charting and you start watching. If by age 10, let's say, the symptoms are so strong and so bad, you can't do anything, then you can start exploring meds. Are some really young kids on meds? Yes, but they don't have to be. The majority of kids can get occupational therapy, body movement work, therapy of talking and learning to manage moods. But you're right. 
Where are these resources coming from? We've got 20 minutes to go to a doctor now, and we have a child that needs or an adult that needs this much help. So truthfully, I can teach everybody how to report it, what to say. I'm really good. My co-author, Dr. John Preston, and I do a lot of diagnosing and what's going to happen and here's what you should do and then take that to a doctor. But let's say you're in rural Ohio and there's no psychiatrist where you live. And that's one of the biggest problems. So you just stick with it. Keep going with your charts. Get things Call a social worker if you have to. Chart, chart, chart. And eventually you'll get a child into treatment. But it all starts with charting and reporting. You would think that if depression is a hormone response in many in many cases, that diet would affect that. This, But you're saying for bipolar and for sort of the more advanced ones, it doesn't, it doesn't have Here's that. why. There is no question. And one of the, it's like even with me, those of us with bipolar, I have so much weight gain from medications. I just have so much weight gain that I have to deal with. And I don't even take a lot of medications. So a lot of our weight issues that you see are often not food related. Mm. That's the first thing. The reason you don't see a book about the diet for bipolar is that, yes, it absolutely can work for depression, might even help with anxiety. But there is so far no diet for mania and psychosis. Mm. First of all, we tend not to eat when we're manic and when psychotic when we're psychotic, food's really weird to us. Like spaghetti will look like monkey brains or you think your food is poisoned or there's something in the food. So the next level SMI that we call these illnesses, does a good diet help? Of course it does. But there's not anything so far of it being able to help the super intense mm. mania and psychosis that comes Why with does it. sleep help? So it's a circadian rhythm disorder. So oh. mania, which... You know, the Nobel Prize was just won for circadian rhythm a couple years ago. This is absolutely a sleep disorder, as can be depression, which makes total sense with seasonal affective disorder. Right. So time changes, light, all of that, that's the 24-hour clock that we have. So for me coming to New York, I stayed on Portland time. There is no way I can go Portland, New York for a few days, stay on New York time and go back. I'll get sick. It's a circadian rhythm. And the best advice I ever heard, this works for parents too with young kids, Go to sleep on the same day you woke up. I work with so many families where there's adult children with mental health disorders living at home who are like waking up at 2 in the afternoon and sleeping at, let's say, 2 a.m. It's going to mess up your circadian rhythm. And that's why people with bipolar don't do well with swing shift or night shift kind of work. It tends to make us sick. So you can also look at bipolar as a circadian rhythm illness. Hormonally, hormones externally affect us. If we take estrogen, really rough on us. Really? So I always recommend like an IUD, non-chemical IUD, condoms, et cetera. But it's not the other way. It's not a hormonal illness. It's a neurotransmitter illness. So hormonally it's there, but estrogen and testosterone are not the reason for bipolar. Females who have depression because of estrogen issues, miscarriage, po- Every single thing that can happen, that's actually not the same kind of depression that you have in bipolar depression. Bipolar depression is always tinged with mania. Traditional depression can have a lot better treatment than we with bipolar depression. You can use antidepressants, light boxes, food, exercise, amino acids. A lot of those tend to make us manic. So hormonally, it's complicated. Yeah, but it's not a hormonal illness. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. It's a phenomenally interesting illness. I I try to say to myself, because it's so awful to have it. It's so awful. That's why I want to work on prevention. Because treatment's too hard. I'm making it. 
Well, what does that leave them So look like? here's what I say about prevention. So if you guys studied or learned about epigenetics, mm-hmm. okay, epigenetics oh. is so exciting. Epigenetics is the belief that we have the ability to determine what genes flip on inside of our bodies. So bipolar can be a naturally occurring genetic illness. It wasn't me. I had no trauma. Nothing happened. One day I'm 16 years old and I start getting sick. It's in my family, by the way. And so epigenetics, very exciting. Most of the research is in plants, but it's moving forward. says you are born with a certain set of genes, but they haven't flipped on yet. Some are on, some are off. We know for sure that certain substances put into a child where the family has bipolar can flip on the bipolar gene, Mm -hmm. genes. We don't know what they are yet. So prevention. If you have bipolar in the family tree, you do not give children antidepressants if there's bipolar in the family tree. You must find other treatments. No steroids. So my nephew, who's 17, has acne. He has a family member and an auntie with full-on bipolar. If he goes in and they shoot him up with prednisone in that acne, he's not had he's had depression but no um, mania yet. Can make him manic and the bipolar flips on. And once it's on, it's on, it's on. Once it's on, it's on. Stimulants, ADD meds. So here you've got this kid. You think the child's got ADD, and you're like, well, let's put him on a stimulant. And I'm like, no, check for bipolar in the family tree because if you put a child. With bipolar, let's say a mom or a dad or a grandparent with bipolar, and you give them stimulants, you might flip on a gene that never would have turned on. Unfortunately, high THC in marijuana. It's our biggest problem in bipolar disorder today. Really? Absolutely. It's a stimulating hallucinogenic. So many of my clients come to me with kids who have heard the cannabis industry say, this is a wonderful drug. Use it. You'll relax. Using it for the right reasons. Have always had depression and anxiety. Bipolar in the family tree. Start using weed. Bipolar. It's an enormous problem. That's I know. Wild. It's shocking. So is that every, like, the CBD oils and the So this is the, and the THC. So if you use a hemp product, product, and I test it all, it seems to be okay. So it's marijuana. And because of the way marijuana is grown and the way that it's not regulated at all, if you get a gummy, for example, I just tell my clients, keep away from gummies because we don't know what's in them. Plus, right. you want to eat the whole thing, right? right. <laughs> you have to keep away from THC mm-hmm. if you have bipolar or schizophrenia in the family tree. It'll make you sick. And, you know, we talked about bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. If you have bipolar 2 genetically and you use a lot of weed, it'll pop you into bipolar 1 oh and gosh. you stay there. Wow. It is a I cannot begin to tell you. And it's so great to have people ask questions and talk about this honestly, because when I started seeing this about 10 years ago, no one would talk about it. Julie, you don't know what you're talking about. Weeds. I'm like, well, everything that I smoked in the 80s and what I've tried now, I'm sorry. It's not the same stuff. This is industrial. I don't know what this stuff is. So we stay away from it in the bipolar community, or we should. Why is like lithium not in the same category of stimulating the brain into a- lithium is what they give people with bipolar, right? right? That's what I'm saying. That's why it's it's effective, it seems like. It's a good question. So lithium, so there are no bipolar disorder medications. Isn't that astonishing? Every single thing used for bipolar is off-label. So you have epilepsy medications, Depakote, Tegretol, Lamictal that they found helped the mood, that used in bipolar. You have antipsychotics, originally created for psychosis and people with schizophrenia. Seroquel, Zyprexa, found out that they helped mania as well. Lithium is the only thing on the market that's just for bipolar, and it's not a drug. It's a salt. And nobody's quite sure how it works. But you remember when people used to take the bath cures in the Roman times and stuff? Those were lithium baths. Mm. And lithium 
the problem with lithium is that it – oh, fabulous shoes. I'm sorry. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> the problem with lithium is that it just hits your kidneys like a, like a steam train and does this. So when I, I have to use lithium for my mania. I don't take it all of the time. I manage almost all of my mania on my own. It just makes you hungry and it makes you overweight for some people. But then others can take lithium, never have an episode again with no side effects. And nobody's quite sure how it works. Yeah. I know people are going to be listening riveted to this episode because it's um, – you're right. It's not something that people have openly spoken about uh, for very long and there's so much to learn. And there's, it's much more common than, it's, than people – Well, I think it's very common and I think people are just on high alert period about mental health and uh, or sickness in their children specifically <laughs> yes. with regards to a lower grade. But depression, higher suicide rates, I mean – uh, and uh, you know, an unavoidable onslaught of things that could make you feel very disenchanted, and uh, you know, why why go on? And I I'm curious if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about, you know, what are you seeing in the world of just uh, depression in children, depression in young adults, and how can parents who are concerned? I mean, I, I've heard horrible horrible stories from friends who have older kids or relatives and things where you know their parents sleeping in the bedroom oh, with yes. their with their teenage children because they're so scared for them and you know the the nonstop um bullying that does exist through social media that does exist in uh you know on on a grand and on a small scale on a daily basis for these kids like what do you what do you see and is there any advice you can give to parents who are struggling with something like that in their kids or think they're seeing something like that in their kids the first thing is is that we introduce something the internet having no idea how it was going to impact mental health. And I would say it's been 50-50. 50% has been phenomenal. I started the – in fact, I had the first bipolar blog. So it was just mm. – it's, it's phenomenal what it's done for my career. I wrote the first ebook, first woman to write a self-help ebook. Wow. And so think about somebody who can't go get a regular job and work in a fabulous place and because of my bipolar. It gave me a career. Then you have all the chats that we used to have all, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I got to see thousands and thousands of symptoms, far more than a doctor ever would start to do that. So that's positive. Then on the other side, I put a post up and underneath it, somebody goes, you should die. You're part of pharma. You're, you're, you suck. I'm going to make your site shut down. And it hits you like, I'm a grown-up. You imagine what it's like for you're kids. Pre- you're preaching to the oh, choir. Oh, let me tell you. We definitely got it. Oh, and you're like, who are you? What have you done? And you're like, I'm a nice person. And you just, and, oh, well, I'm trying to help people. I'm not even making any money. And, oh, oh, oh. and then you have to learn year after year. I don't read reviews. I try not to look at comments. I have other people look. So we've opened up a world where people can be judged so quickly online. The first thing we have to do is parents have to start controlling the social media more. No, your nine-year-old does not need a cell phone. There might be pressure, and you might have an unhappy child, but I'm sorry. No, they don't. They don't need to be on a tablet at age two and three that has not been fixed so that they can't go and look. I mean, little kids will find porn. Don't ask me how they do it. They'll type in booby or something and they'll find it. Or they talk to Siri. That's when oh, my, oh I my turn Siri off because my kids, they can't spell. I mean, my oldest one can, but my other ones can't. And they're like, hey, Siri, show me a picture of it. And you're like, no, <laughs> you can't do it. And we know they're all listening, right? Uh, so we've added that in. But on the other hand, could it be that this issue has always been here and now we just have texts and videos showing it? Yeah. I don't, first of all, we do not have more bipolar. So there's a positive. Bipolar is not increasing. It's the same as it's always been. It's a genetic illness. You really don't give yourself bipolar. It's not like that. 
But what I see really increasing in terms of, of depression is the kind of dramatic, anxious depression that involves cutting and a lot of really upset emotional regulation kind of depression, which is a little bit different than bipolar depression. I think that is more of a product of the internet. So if we start talking to kids when they're two or three years old and we go, this is a brain, this is a knee, this is an elbow. If you fall and skin your knee, here's what happened. If your brain's not feeling well, you might have a thought like, I don't want to go to school. Nobody likes me. So let's discuss that in the same way we discuss if you skin your knee. What does it mean? I don't have any friends. I don't want to go to school. Is that real? You don't have any friends. You don't want to go to school. Or is that your brain sort of malfunctioning? My nephew's 17. That's how I raised, helped raise him. I started at age two. And we started talking about depression. So when his depression arrived, we were hoping it would skip him. It didn't skip him. He's got bipolar and depression and anxiety on both sides of the family. I was able to go. It looks like today is one of those days. Remember how we talked about depression? What do you need? We're not going to talk about any other stuff. We're talking about the depression. And he'll talk to me. So the secret is introducing the concept of the wayward brain to very young children. They can get it. Yeah. If they can understand why you throw up or that if you cut yourself, you can't stick your finger in it, why can't they understand that the brain is not always telling the truth? I say to all parents, especially if there's bipolar in the family, we talk openly about suicidal thoughts. If you ever have the thought of jumping out a window, come see me. Your brain's not working. And I know that sounds scary, but if you've got serious suicidal depression in your family or bipolar or schizophrenia, that has to be talked about. Mm -hmm. So my nephew, David, and I, we talk about suicide all the time. I'll go, any kids having trouble? He goes, well, I talked to one or two of them, and this one's doing this or that. It becomes normal. It's a dinner table topic. That's a good way to look at it. Talk about it at the dinner table. How's your brain today? Yeah. Being nice to you? Being mean to you? What's it doing? Well, it's also amazing that you, not only in your life, have turned what you're born with into a way to help other people. And you're teaching your nephew to do the same thing. You're mm -hmm. taking something that, you know what, maybe you wouldn't have chosen. You probably wouldn't have I chosen. I would not have chosen. But, but you know, but you're but you're turning it you. into into something that that can really help a lot of other people. I'm I'm curious about um, you know, if you're seeing something in your teen, um, in yourself, in your spouse, in your three year old and I mean, it's easier. I don't want to say it's easier in your three-year-old, but you can make your three-year-old do certain things of go to therapy and stuff like that. But just in terms of this, I see that you have problems, 16-year-old, and where we need to go get help. And they say, I don't have that. I don't have that. Those are the kids that go school, shoot up schools. Those are the kids that go do this. I don't have that. I don't have that. Disability. Refuse, I don't have a disability. Right. And they refuse to seek help. There's really is nothing mm -hmm. that you can do if somebody's refusing to seek help because it seems like so much of it has to be self-motivated. And so it seems that way. First of all, let's not wait till 16. So anybody who's listening who has really young kids, let's start talking about it at age two or three. So when the 16 happens, you'll go, remember when we talked about this, 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 and this? So Right, you prime the conversation. You prime, you prime them mm -hmm. by talking about the brain. So superhero, be a brain superhero. Yeah. Be a brain superhero. Is there a sad kid at school? You're the brain superhero. Go figure out why the kid's sad. Talk to them. Be nice to them. What does bullying do to the brain? What reaction are you having if someone goes, you're fat, you're ugly, and you feel like crying? What's the brain doing? Right. What's happening there? In terms of approaching a 16-year-old, it's like walking into the lion's den or a bear <laughs> hibernation den. 
First off, to meet a 16-year-old at their own place. And I'm lucky because I got to see this beautiful kid grow up right in front of me. So from two, and he's now 17, or actually I was there when he was born. I've experimented with him in a really natural way. And I started it when he was like four or five, and I started with empathy training. And here's what it sounds like. You guys can practice this. When you pick up your kids from school, you'll notice you're going to ask them a million questions. How was it? What'd you do? What'd you eat? What'd you do? I, I flipped it. When my nephew get in the school, I go, ask me about my day. And I started to teach him empathy. Started around age four. Because he was just like, I don't know, what, what do you want to ask me? And I'd say, <laughs> I'd say, just ask me about my day. And he'd go, how was your day? And i go, it was fine. I did this, this, and this. Then we'd flip. Now, this kid, and he's a normal kid, by the way. Believe me, this is nothing. He's a normal kid. He'll go, how was work this week? I'm like, oh, my God, a 15-year-old just asked me how work was. <laughs> he means it. He asks it. I watch him do it with other people. So empathy training is where we start. So if you've got a 16-year-old, and let's say you haven't talked about it, you walk in and first you praise empathetic behavior. Hey, honey, thank you so much for letting me talk to you. I love it when we sit down. And I know you might want to talk to me, but at least you let me. appreciate it. I love being your dad. Use his words. I heard you say that things aren't really great at school right now. I understand that. I remember being 16. Things weren't great. And here's where everything changes. State your needs. This is the system I teach. I know you probably don't want to talk about the mood, and I understand that. And there's a good chance you don't want to really sit down and tell me what's going on. So I'm going to explain what I've observed, and I'd like to know your opinion. And what I've observed is that a kid that used to do something every single day after school is now sitting at home. That might be something you're choosing to do, or it might be something because maybe your brain's not working and you're not feeling good about it. You used to really love to hang out with your siblings. You're not doing that now. Could be a choice, could be something else. But I've also noticed that you've been crying. Crying is absolutely normal. And when a dude cries, it's embarrassing. So when I put all three of those things together, I'm seeing these changes in your crying. To me, it sounds like something's going on physically and I'd like to talk to you. And that's how it works. And you will find almost every time a child will listen. And here's why. You're not telling the child what to do. You're not telling the child what he has or has not done. Praise empathetic behavior, use their words, state your needs. I need to talk to you about what I'm seeing in the change of behavior because I'm feeling anxious about it. And it calms the defensiveness down. Interesting. Almost always, that's the next book I need to write. I really need to get that book out there. It's what I do with my coaching. It just somehow, the teenager who wants to go, leave me alone, the shoulders will go down and they'll go, oh yeah, it's been rough. And that's the entrance. That's the entrance to it. Most kids will talk to you. And now, if you have an oppositional kid, leave me the F alone. You know what you're talking about, blah, 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 blah. Drug test them. I'm a big <laughs> drug tester. I'm sorry. If you've got a kid on cannabis who's being mean and nasty and you don't know what's going on and this kid used to be rather okay and something's not right, drug test them. Find the THC. Even if it's legal, you'll find that I'm not a— But how do you good. make them stop then? How do you—I mean— It's not a question. I don't find about making people stop. I'm not a big believer in that. Rock bottom doesn't work. Making people stop doesn't work. I'm a real believer in when you cohabitate with someone, you both have to get your needs met. So if you're a 16-year-old living in my home, I'm not going to tell you what to do all the time. And I'm not going to tell you 
basically everything that you need to do. But I can tell you that using cannabis at 16 is concerning to me. And in order for me to feel comfortable about having you in my home and doing all this, we need to talk about it. And then it becomes about you. Once again, start this at two, three, and four-year-olds. It makes it a lot easier. I can talk about weed with my nephew now because I started training him about five years ago with what I was seeing. It's his choice whether he uses it or not. We don't stop somebody from using cannabis right. or cocaine, but we can tell them how the behavior affects us and ask if we can talk about it. And that's a first step. That's a first step. But another thing that's important to know is that if you're taking a THC product and you have bipolar or schizophrenia, it'll affect meds and it'll affect your mood. Yeah. You know, our kids are, are quite young and they give us a hard time, but mm-hmm. not, not the way that I can anticipate as teenagers with agency, with freedom, with car keys, with whatever, have more flexibility to 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 make good choices and make bad ones. Yep. Um, and I think there are parents who want to get de- – are desperate to get involved. And I love how proactive your methodology is. And, and I do think a part of it is that your teenagers can stop seeing you as another human. It's, they it, can stop seeing you as with your own needs and your own – And you need. have to bring that back for them. I love Also, it. this system is for kids who are struggling. Mm. You don't have to have this sort of scripted system for kids who are just – going through a regular time, maybe it's their first breakup or they're a little bit worried about their bodies. You don't have to script it that much. My work, the parents have called me the kids in the hospital or the kid's been arrested or the kid won't come out of their room or hasn't taken a bath for six weeks. So that kind of system, whereas if you're looking at regular, and I don't even like to say regular because all kids are great. Kids that are more of the norm of the society they live in, you'll be able to talk to them a lot more open. Hey, can we talk about cannabis? Tell me what's going on in school. You won't have to use this sort of much more planned system if a kid's a little more stable. I do want people who are at home to be able to, let's just go back. Mm -hmm. So we have the journaling and then we have the reaching out. Where is the place to reach out? So if you've got a young child, if it's an adult, by the way, you probably have gone through it already. Mm-hmm. If you've got an older kid, that kid started having issues around 16, 17, because that's when SMI just tends to start. So you've probably had some stuff going on with children. First of all, do the charting. So if you go online to Julie Fast and just type in Think Says Does, an article will pop up about how to chart for kids. You can use it for adults as well. Then you have to be careful. You have to Find a healthcare professional who will work with you. Because of HIPAA, a lot of healthcare professionals, that's our Insurance Privacy Act, doesn't want to work with the parents. If you're the parent of a young child, you get to do it. After 18, the child has to invite you in. So be aware of that. Chart it. And then go in and don't tell a story. Instead, go to your pediatrician and say, I've thought about it. I've read stuff. I've looked at some books. Here are the concerning symptoms I see. I've written them down in a bulleted list. I need your advice on where to go next because this isn't getting better. Sometimes it's episodic or it's either all the time. This is not just a typical child. So there's no story there. When he was three, he did this and I dropped him and he did that. You can get that later. You present that. A good pediatrician will know what to do next. If it's a teenager, getting the teen in, do it for another reason. Get him in for a sleep study. Get them in for anxiety and maybe touch depression. It's pretty hard to get a teen to go in for bipolar unless it's been talked about already, right? So that's one of the things. And if you start early, age two, three, or four, when the symptoms come up older, it'll be easy. You'll be able to, okay, remember what we talked about? It's time to go in. That's how it'll be with my nephew. If we see any signs of mania, he knows we're all sitting down and going, here it is. Let's hope not, but he'll be ready. 
And then the next thing is ask around. Is there anybody around you who has kids with similar kind of symptoms? Who's the best person to go to? Do not start with therapy. I can't stress that enough. If your child actually has a mental health concern, not trauma, not abuse, that's not what any of this is about. These kids that I work with, there's no trauma or abuse. This is not, this is just genetic. Therapy will have you sitting talking about family dynamics and why did this happen? And was mom mean? And did dad disappear? And did mom disappear? And it won't ever get to the where you need to go. So save therapy for once you know what you have. Look for a specialty place and do not use medications until you know if it's bipolar or not. For example, putting an antidepressant in a young teen who has bipolar in the family would be big a big problem. Right. Check for drug use, even in the really young. I know it's so sad, but there might be some ecstasy. There might be some, like we, we do spice, bath salts, bubble. I have to deal with all of this. Who knows what's going around in school? Yeah. Kids are snorting Adderall in high school now. It breaks my heart. So imagine snorting Adderall at a party, not knowing that you have bipolar. Yeah. So just being more aware of the drug use and then being really consistent with treatment. If something happens, let's say, for example, you do get a diagnosis, it's for life. Yeah. This is like diabetes. It's no different than diabetes. So really focus on that. And you can read my books. My books, if it's bipolar, you can read my books. And there's lots of help online that you can go to. And learn to get your own fear because it's so scary when a child's sick. Try and move it from the head and the shoulders and the arms sort of down into the, you can call it a chakra or whatever, but more into your base and just go, I'm going to get help from my child. My child's going to be okay. We're in this together. That's great advice. We have to wrap up, but we do ask our guests what their favorite thing is. Ah, being with my nephew, David. That's my favorite thing in the world. And you got to be really careful because when you have a young nephew and you're in your 50s, you got to let him have his own life. But he still wants to hang out with me. Still wants to go to movies sometimes. Still calls. We do do a lot of work together. We have a podcast together. He's my favorite thing in the world. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was our conversation with Julie. And I just think she is, first of all, she is so precise and and specific in the way that she thinks, the way that she talks. And it is so beautiful because it really, I mean, it's clear how much work she's put into um, understanding this disease and and really understanding how to live with it and how to live with it positively, which I love. I also really loved her strategy about um, empathy, but also priming our children's speaking pathway to talk about mental health and to talk about their their internal state so that it doesn't sneak up on them. They don't like show up at 15 feeling like a loser or that someone was mean to them or they didn't get to sit with the people they liked and suddenly feel like that's a judgment on them for the rest of their life and that being negative in this moment means the rest of their life is doomed. And I think, you know, we it's it is a scary time in some ways to parent through this age and parent through, you know, some of the stresses that are new to kids today. Um, but what I loved was this, was this idea of here, here are ways you can talk to your kids no matter what their ages are to start to prepare them for having a very robust arsenal of tools they can use to address any kind of um, you know, instability or depression or just discomfort that might come up internally. But I feel like she is probably one of the better speakers that we've ever had on the Incredible. podcast. And um, her ability to to really give um, those of you who are thinking about this a 
action, action plan. plan is was absolutely amazing. So we're so grateful that that Julie came on and did her, our podcast. And um, and now it's time for our favorite things. Now it's time for our favorite things. Yes. What's your favorite thing today? Um. So today I'm going. I'm going back to food. Um, I'm going to talk about Bjorn corn because this is something that we literally cannot keep in stock in my house. My kids are obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with it. It's, um, it's essentially popcorn that they cover with coconut oil and nutritional yeast, which I feel I've been making at home for a million years and this just comes ready-made. Nutritional yeast, I think I've talked about in the past, is really great because it has tons of B vitamins B12 and protein. Specifically. B12 specifically. And if you are plant-based, that is a very important Correct. thing. This is one of our main food groups also at home. It's really, it's right. It's tough and it's one of those things that, that V Vegans have known about forever, and I think like mainstream, it's becoming quite popular now, probably in part because of Bjorn corn. But um, but it tastes like Parmesan cheese. Like it just has the most wonderful. It's one of those things where people eat it because it's healthy, but really you should just eat it because it's delicious. And anyway, they come. I got them sent in these like little bags, so they're sort of individual portion size. For me, it's a nice alternative to constant pretzels. Like my kids like salty, crunchy snacks, constant pretzels and chips and things like that. I just don't want to give them. And popcorn is, it's a whole grain and this is a non-GMO um, offering of it. So I I just love to have them around. For me, like good snacks that I can feel like if, you know, if the kids want to eat the whole bag, it's not going to, it's not a problem for me. Um, I just like it a lot. My kids as well absolutely love that one. That's a really good one. Um, my favorite thing today is um, this nail polish that I've been obsessed with. It's called Dazzle Dry Nail Polish, and it's supposed to be a healthier nail polish. It dries really quickly, and um, and they're like really pretty colors. So right now I have this like really deep, like what would you call it, a forest green? A forest green. Evergreen. Evergreen. Um, and they have it at my local nail salon, um, and it just, it's like a really nice polish. I find it doesn't chip very easily, and I am somebody who I do a lot of dishes and like cleaning things all the time, cleaning dog crates, you know. All the stuff. Mm. Four children, Mrs. three Baldwin. dogs. Mrs. Baldwin. <laughs> the things that Mrs. Baldwin would not be doing. Um, anyway, so I really like this. I much. love that. And I actually, I I only infrequently get my nails painted a dark enough color that like you would notice this. But it nothing drives me crazier than having it get messed up right mm-hmm. at like right at the edge of being dry. And like know? I've had this for like I, maybe like four days. And I feel like dark color yeah, four days. And no chips. At all. No chips. Um, All right, guys, thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, um, share, share, share. Tell all your friends about it. It's super fun to to put all of our heads together and try to figure all this stuff out that we're we're working on here. Um, And email us, please. Mom brain pod. Mom brain moment. I couldn't remember it. Mom brain pod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram. All that good stuff. Until next time. Bye. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Mom Brain is a Gallery Media Group original production.